0: We should think about innovation and future possibilities and we should think about like, what would it take that you blow this trade-off away and you can have an efficient and high efficiency, low fulfillment cost interaction with the customer and still delight the customer.
1: Thanks for pressing play. That voice you just heard is Professor Christian Tervish from the Wharton School of Business. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have authentic dialogues, that celebrate the people, ideas, and companies with the courage to stand out. We are sponsored by Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business and stay on top of your numbers at netsuite.com different. And I also want to tell you about uh, the One Life Fully Lived Conference, October 12th and 13th, 2019 in beautiful Long Beach, California. If you're a regular listener, you know One Life is an organization I've been involved with since the very beginning. And this year, we have an incredible weekend plan for those people who are seeking mastery in their lives. You'll have an opportunity to learn from world-class speakers in the areas of vision planning, finances, wellness and relationships and um, i'll be one of the speakers there this is an organization started by my dear friend tim road we have an episode with him coming up very soon so i hope you can join me check out org slash c lockhead for more information on one life's annual conference all right on this episode, we continue our run of amazing professors and authors with none other than Professor Christian Turvish. We dig into his new book. Uh, it's called Connected Strategy. And uh, we look at the new forms of connectivity that are enabling companies to uh, create frequent, low friction and customer, customized customer interactions that drive meaningful competitive advantage. Uh, along with teaching, Um, Professor uh, Turvish also hosts the Work of Tomorrow show on Sirius XM Radio. And uh, Christian is a super smart guy. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I know you will too. Go to Lockhead.com for the show notes on this episode and key takeaways and to learn more about Professor Tervish's new book. Now, hey-ho, let's go.
0: Well, the first thing that you should think about, again, is from the customer's perspective. It's like, what product or service would you want to provide with them? And if you think about the customer perspective, like um, take Nike as an example, right? Where, again, Nike sells you a running shoe and you can do a lot of great things to build better running shoes and spend R&D money and marketing money on that relationship with the retail stores. But really, you're not getting to what really the customer wants from you. The customer's pain point are not about just buying the shoe and having a great shoe. There's a much bigger aspiration that this runner potentially has about feeling good, running their first marathon. And if you can get into that mindset, that whole customer journey that ends in the Footlocker store was a purchase, if you can get early on into that kind of customer journey, you have ways of basically delighting the customer of, of uh, reducing pain points that a company that is just is just focusing on the shoe itself is just not able to deliver on.
1: So, should I think about this in terms of um, you know a buzzword we hear a ton today? Of course, is uh, engagement. And then the other big buzzword we hear in this domain, uh, uh, certainly I do a lot is 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 experience. So how should I think about? creating a connected strategy and, and how do you think about engagement and experience
0: yeah i like i like engagement i like experience i mean so the first time i heard this term brought up was a colleague here at ward coined this term ian mcmillan coined this term the consumption chain to remind us again that people don't wake up in the morning and say like we want your product there's a whole journey from uh, customers basically realizing they need something Uh, the need that initially might be latent, only uh, known deep inside the customer. The the customer becomes aware of the need. They look for like, what could I do? They then ultimately make a choice. Then they place an order. And you as a firm are really at the very back end of that. And so I like this idea of, consumption chain in the book we call it customer journey it's a form of engagement it's a form of experience the one thing uh, christopher would add to that is that it's really repeated right it's a repeated interaction it's not about one user experience one engagement it's weaving those disjoint experiences together so that you and i my firm you will have a relationship that goes much longer than one episode
1: Yes. I had an experience of this uh, recently I'd like to sort of share with you and sort of get your thoughts on. Um, I bought a new piece of podcasting equipment from um, uh, a company called Sweetwater.com. And, you know, they compete against Amazon and all the other kind of technical music equipment. You know, they sell musical gear, recording gear, things along those lines. And um, uh, I couldn't buy this piece of equipment on Amazon, so I found them and I went to the site and interestingly enough, um, as soon as I bought the item, I had this email, and, which is normal. And then my phone rang. And I don't normally pick my phone up, but I, I, I sort of wondered if this was a connected thing. So I picked up my phone and there was a gal on the phone. She introduced herself to me and she said, listen, I'm, I forget her name, but you know I'm Cindy or whatever her name was from Sweetwater. And she said, you bought this piece of equipment. And she said, if you don't mind, could I ask you a little bit about what you're going to do with it? And I said, sure. I told her I was a podcaster and I listened, you know we had this conversation. She explained to me that she was a musician and a sound engineer and that if I had any questions or concerns, I could call her directly. This was her phone number. And she emailed me a special URL as well that I could look at FAQs that they had specific to this product that I bought and so forth and so on. She welcomed me as a new customer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was just absolutely blown away because as convenient as a site like Amazon is, of course, that level of personal touch is not something Amazon uh, even tries to do. And yet here's this more niche provider in the area of musical and recording equipment who has somehow figured out a way to use the technology to create a deep personal connection with me. And so I share that story with you. And I'm curious, is this the kind of thing that you're espousing?
0: Yeah, I think it's a great example. Thank you for sharing that. It's really this embeddedness of the moment of purchase, right? I mean, as business people, we think about like, when you press click, it's still over and the money's in the bank and okay, we have to still do a shipment and not mess it up and the product has to work, but the transaction is over. And I think your example really nicely shows an embeddedness of that moment of purchase in a longer customer journey. Uh, In your example there, Christopher, you talk about the tail end of that, right, what happens after you've bought. Uh, I think there could be a similar version of your story that happened before you talk you purchase right it's basically again i mean you're you're a pro and an expert in, in podcasting and you probably knew what you wanted but many people new to that area might go like well look i have a budget of 500 i might i'm not entirely sure what i need there's this whole purpose of there's this whole process of really sorting through the purchase options figuring out what you should need and kind of what a good equipment is and again there are other many many other forms of connected opportunities in the upstream if you will but it is all part of this customer journey that is going beyond the moment of purchase into what we call recognize helping you recognize really i need this new microphone because my podcast sounds so much better it has you it helps you formalize the requests of like what product or you know what what opt- option or kind of specific item in the catalog should you buy. So there's recognize, you should find your request. And then the firm has to be able to respond and deliver you a, a microphone or device that you find is good for you. And ideally, to let me finish this thought, so recognize, request, respond, and then ideally repeat where they kind of check in with you six months later and say, like, well, look, there's been an upgrade in technology on the item that you just bought. And for $250, you can buy this extra piece of hardware. And we'll help you to install it and give, we're going to give you 10% off. And you again feel like, oh yeah, I like, I like you guys.
1: Yeah, very much so. And as a matter of fact, the experience was so positive. I thought I'm not going to buy uh, podcasting equipment from Amazon anymore. I'm going to, I want these guys to be successful. I appreciate this extra level of service and the prices are pretty much the same. And so if it's all the same, I'm going to focus, I'm going to, sp- you know, buy from this niche vendor who's overly focused on taking care of me. And it leads me to a question. And, you know, I thought about this with your book is um, these are the things I think you and I as consumers, as customers really want. And yet so few companies seem to be doing it.
0: Yeah, I think it's disappointing that uh, many customers, I think a lot of the competition is just focused on the product and the price. And in all fairness, I think the internet has contributed to that. I think especially we Germans have this really kind of penny-counting reputation where we just go wherever it's cheap. And that puts this focus entirely on the product and the price and not realizing that in this whole customer journey that we just talked about early on, we are suffering so much pain, right? There's so much pain and friction. And you just go like, well, look, I'm happily paying you a couple of bucks extra if you You take some of these pain points out and you make that journey much more enjoyable to me. And that's ultimately where you then get to the sweet spot that if these guys that you just mentioned, sweetwater.com, if they're doing a fine job, they're no longer competing for your business head-to-head with Amazon or other retailers. And that's the definition for a competitive advantage, right? Now they're in a position where you're no longer shopping for price alone, and that allows them to stand out and basically get a bigger share of your wallet.
1: Yeah, and it, re- it really, in a world where I think a lot of companies, and you'll tell me you're, the, you're, you're much more learned about this than I am, where it almost feels like some companies have used technology to um, make efficient transactions possible. But to your point, they've taken the human piece out. Many of the things we buy uh, require some questions. Um, whether they're technical products or whatever they are, uh, or we're comparing one thing to another and so forth. And it seems like in a world where companies have focused on efficiency, uh, transaction processing capability and so forth, they seem to have forgotten the fact that we're human beings. When we buy things, there's emotions, there's questions, there's concerns, there's comparisons and so forth. And sometimes it can be very daunting to buy something.
0: I want to backpedal a little bit on our discussion here. Uh, I've like two points where I'm concerned we are maybe kind of gotten off track a little bit. The first one is that uh, it doesn't have to be human right? In some sense, we were kind of, you were kind of trash talking Amazon, and not trash talking, right? But you're saying, like, well, Sweetwater was so much better. You know, Amazon is, on many dimensions, actually doing a pretty good job in product recommendations and helping customers navigate the search space. Uh, and if you think about the history of Amazon, they did pretty well, right? And partly that had to do with recommendation, one-click shopping, later on, Alexa came along. And so they have done this, I think, pretty well. So it's not, doesn't have to be human. And the second one, and that's in some sense a puzzle of connected strategy that we try to explore in the book, if you're doing well, you can actually oftentimes do this cheaper and more efficient compared to the firm that is not following a connected strategy, right? So it's not that we are throwing extra dollars at customer service and say like, well, look, uh, Christopher needs some handholding and we're going to spend $10 per purchase that he does on kind of after sales services to make him feel good. That might be a good marketing play. The connected strategy argument is that actually we're going to do create a user experience and a relationship where we're going to lift up his happiness, but at the same time, we're smart and actually make it more efficient for us.
1: Hmm. So we're trying to walk this line of efficiency, cost effective, uh, and the right level of, and you'll tell me how to think about it, but the right level of Uh, customer touches at the right points in the journey? Is that sort of the magic?
0: That is well put. put. I think every business has to answer two questions. There's the what and there's the how. The what is like, what does a customer want? What delights the customer? What's the magic here? Those are no pain, helping the customer find what they need, making it available quickly to the customer high quality in strategy in economics we call this the drivers of willingness to pay what is making the customer happy and then there is a how what are we going to do how are we going to go about fulfilling that product or service from the customer that demand and that talks about now about the operations and your supply chain and your warehouse and your customer service support um so there's this tension between the what and the how and and, and Traditionally, they are kind of—they don't like each other. If I make you happier, it's going to cost more. Um, and again, what you want to do and what gives you competitive advantage in the market is, if you shift out that the trade-off curve, that frontier, you shift it out, then you would be able to do more with less, and that's really the opportunity we're talking about.
1: Yes, you—you you guys write about. Let me get this right: frequent, low friction customized interactions.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So if you think about, uh, again, I I think Amazon has done this pretty well, right? That uh, most American households, for many things, they're no longer shopping them around. When, you know, we call the early days of book publishing, you would go to a couple of book sites. There would be price comparison sites. At some point, most consumers, for the better or the worse, have just said, like, well, look, I'm good. I am just trust Amazon has good prices. It's one-click shopping. They make good recommendations for other things that I might need or I find interesting. And I'm just going to click on Amazon. And that is exactly what you mentioned. It's low friction. It's very personalized, customized to me. And it's kind of high frequency because for most items I need, I'm just, I just go right to Amazon.
1: Yeah, and it, we can get lazy, right? We can uh, <laughs> yeah. had this experience, but part of me sort of thinks, well, if it's not on Amazon, fuck them! Like, it's <laughs> hard for me to buy this.
0: Right? <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, again, this is this is getting to an element of trust here. That at some point you really you 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 feel that both sides have invested so much into that relationship that you're not going to shop every piece of your business around because again that goes back to the pain points I mean I there's some consumer surplus for us in there as well it makes our life better in the sense of uh, it saves us the effort of going to the store down the street and check out three other online providers and that Amazon certainly loves it. And Jeff Bezos made a ton of money this way. But I I want to avoid the perception that this is some form of a consumer ripoff here. I think we as consumers have really also gotten the surplus out of this transaction.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now you guys write about, you call them the four R's. So can you kind of, um, you know, bring, bring these four R's to life for me?
0: Yeah. So the you, we mentioned kind of this idea of a customer journey, consumption chain, user experience, right? engagement, were terms we discussed before, Christopher. And so if you think about that journey, we believe it's helpful to kind of put it into four hours. We're not marketing gurus, but so we felt four hours sounds kind of sexy, better than three hours and the W or so. And so we made it four hours. <laughs> so there's recognize. Right. Early on in the consumption chain, early on in the customer survey, uh, journey, I have to recognize I want or I need something. That might be the need to see a doctor, that might be the urge to go uh, to the beach this weekend, that might be the need for a new running shoe, I recognize something. Then I have to form that abstract recognition, that abs- unfulfilled need. I have to turn this into what we call a request. I said, well, ah, I, uh, I want a running shoe. I want Nike model one, two, three and black shoe size nine and a half. Right? You turn that recognition of a need into a request. The request then goes to the firm and the firm has to be able to respond. They have to Give you something that you know you, you meets your need, recognize, request, respond, and then there comes repeat. Whereas to form a relationship, as opposed to one user experience or one episode, this has to for, we create a circle that we go back to the next episode very soon, and that that is all for our four-hour framework that we felt, felt was very helpful in terms of conceptualizing what we're talking about.
1: And so if I'm, if I'm a CEO or I'm a senior executive and I'm sort of thinking about our quote-unquote connected strategy, is this where you'd want me to start as the four R's in the customer journey?
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point to start, is just really understand what in the customer journey are the pain points right now, where are the unfulfilled opportunities. Uh, what we did in our research is we identified four ways you can kind of shape these customer journeys for with what type of relationships that you can have with your customer. The first one is we call respond to desire. That is very Uber-like. I, I, I sit here right now. I know I want to get dull to the airport in 20 minutes. I press the button, I know exactly what I want, and voila, an Uber shows up. The second one is somewhat in the spirit of your earlier example when you bought this audio equipment, we call this curated off brings is there's a lot of stuff out there and you're not entirely sure which microphone you want or what exactly is right for you you know you want a new headset or new speaker but you just need some guidance in figuring out what you want so this whole notion of recommendation that's curated offering the third one we call a coach behavior where basically you have some long-term aspiration some goal maybe to health your fitness your personal savings and you, you know what you want and the long run, but in the short run, you feel like, ah, I'm a little lazy today. I'm a little myopic. I'm just, I don't get my butt out of the bed. You need somebody to kind of push you a little bit. And then the fourth one we call automatic execution, where at some point for some things, you might entrust the firm to just do things for you, and you just don't want to get involved with that. So you just trust that your financial investment company is basically managing and rebalancing your portfolio. You don't want to get into the details. You just entrust all of that to the firm.
1: We, we sure hope they're not screwing that up, don't we, Christian?
0: <laughs> well, it's a scary thought, right? I mean, again, uh, I, I think all of these four um, relationships have their raison d'etre, the, 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 the reasons why they're out there. Um, but but you're totally right there. Like if, I, uh, if I rely on automatic execution, uh, think about healthcare, right? I mean, every time I... My, my my Apple Watch tells me that there's an irregular heartbeat if every time it will automatically dispatch a nine one one call, I'd be poor paying for these ambulances pretty soon, right? And so at that level you really have to perform really well. You have to really understand the customer well to basically be able to pull this off.
1: And It seems to me, and I may be biased, so you you can help educate me, but having spent the better part of, uh, uh, you know, 30 years in the technology industry and many of those years in in and around Silicon Valley, my spider sense is that um, startups often think about this stuff and execute this stuff more powerfully than big sort of incumbent companies do. And you know the evidence would be call most startups or go to most startups' website and have sort of an interact a customer interaction there, versus trying to deal with by way of example, I think one of the worst companies in our world is is a Comcast. You know you <laughs> try to deal with Comcast and Comcast makes the DMV look good, and <laughs> and so. Uh, am I right in that bias that often it's, it's newer, more innovative companies that do this better than sort of uh, the Comcasts of the world? Or am I being uh, prejudiced?
0: I think you might be right on average with outliers being on both sides. Uh, in the book, we talk a, little, a bit about Disney and the Magic Band, which arguably is not a startup and a company that, over many, many years in the business of theme parks, later on in the business of, of video games, retail stores, has really done a pretty damn good job at creating contacted customer relationships. But I think you'll nevertheless have an important point there that for many companies it's very hard to think as a big company about the customer as as, as the center of the universe right you think about your various div- your various business units your retail stores your movie theaters the video kind of the games the parks when we talked with disney about how they've pulled the magic band off it was really interesting to see how how hard it is for a big company to put the customer in the center to focus on these customer journeys and realize that we have many Interactions was the same customer for us, it's a very different customer coming to the theme park versus to the movie theater versus to the uh, the retail store. For the customer, it's just one firm. It's just Disney. And so weaving these different interactions together is very hard for established firms. And so I think there might be a startup edge. But but really, again, I think there are enough examples of big companies like a Nike, like a, um, like a Disney, who've done this well. And so I'm hesitant to generalize that big companies can pull cannot pull this off
1: yes now just so I'm clear um, I was at a, um, a business conference in Orlando last year and is this magic band is this the thing I'm thinking about when you check into the hotel they give you this band that has a little uh, IOT I don't know what to call it little nubby thing in it
0: uh-huh. Uh-huh. and that
1: is your it's your room key it's your access to the park it's your credit card it's, it's, uh, it's security. It does all these things uh, sort of magically. You wave it in front of your... your... It's,
0: yeah, it's true magic. And That's what
1: that thing is, right?
0: It's true magic, except of course it's built on technology and it's not really true magic, right? But uh, it's but true magic
1: and it's... Somebody said great technology is indistinguishable from magic, It didn't I no?
0: I love that quote. I
1: love that quote. Who said that? <laughs>
0: I'm blanking on it. I I read it a couple of times. I think it goes back to the 70s or the 80s. But I I think it's a wonderful quote. And again, if you think about Disney, it's not just uh, what I mentioned earlier on this respond to desire kind of relationship where it's like, I want to open my room now. or I want to pay for that. or I want to order a hamburger. Those relationships, again, we've taken, or Disney taken has taken the friction out of them, and I give them a lot of credit for that. The cool thing uh, that you can also do with the Magic Band is you just walk around the park, and you're walking by a video screen, and the video screen recognizes you as who you are, Christopher, and they know that you are playing the Disney video game um, Pirates of the Caribbean, and you're struggling at level 13. They can put a picture of level 13 right next to you. And then when you're flying home afterwards, they can send you a memory book to your cell phone, where basically they have taken pictures of you all day long in the park, all of that without you having ever noticed the camera. And so there's so much more magic that you can create uh, so that we felt really the magic band is one of the most kind of beautiful examples, case studies that we've seen in industry as a connected strategy.
1: Yes, I couldn't agree more. And there's something about this that I've been dying to ask you, Professor, which is, if I think about this from a purely information technology perspective, for the most part, for the 50 or 60 years of the industry, the paradigm around data has been one where, um, and this is overly simplistic, but but stay with me for a sec, if you could, where data for the most part is a record of something that happened and we're living at a time and i think the magic band is as good as and maybe be, you know great example that we can have is data is now the thing that makes things happen in real time.
0: So it for, makes things happen. Yeah, so and
1: i there's think there's this what,
0: predicted element in it, right?
1: Well i want to get to the predictive part too, but if you just if the fact that you and i are at a disney property and we want to sit down and have lunch I can pay for that lunch with this magic band. And in order for that to happen, of course, there's data in the band. There's data in their servers somewhere around. Am I a guest of the park? Do I have credit? What hotel am I staying Mm -hmm. at? How much credit do I have? So there's this data in motion, that is to say a request to buy, you know, $30 worth of lunch that needs to get validated with all this quote unquote data at rest in order to enable a transaction and more importantly, from a customer journey perspective an experience of you and I have a, a nice lunch and then I'm able to pay for it just by waving this magic band. And so with that said, it seems to me this is a gigantic shift in thinking around the use of technology and in particular, the way data needs to work that we're moving from a world where data used to be, uh, Typically, a record of what happened to being a thing that actually makes things happen.
0: Yeah, so I, I like the kind of where you're going, right? So I think in the past we just had to form a record and it would basically kind of be stored in the archive somewhere and maybe useful billing. Now, in real time, it has is basically allowing us things in real time, making sure that you are the right guest and you still have money left on your credit card and other things, right? And then I think there's, again, this predictive element where we want to get to the point where we are just looking at the moment, but we are making on the data we collected in the past, we use AI to make some prediction of what might give joy for you, right? And so I think there's this history of how technology has changed. The one footnote I would add to that is I think it's easy to get kind of all to focus on the data and the IT infrastructure. Clearly the stuff has to work, but in our opinion, it is really not a technology play alone. It is really having the imagination as, as as executive, as a CEO, to have the imagination, like what type of customer experiences do I want to provide, right? It's not what IT should I buy. It's really a lot of the IT is, be, is becoming available on the market pretty much for anybody who wants it, is really creating these magical customer relationships, which is your job as a senior executive.
1: So I'm curious on that front, Professor. Um, why is it a Disney or a Nike uh, has a track record of being, to use your phrase, more creative um, than some other companies? And if I'm a, maybe a company that doesn't have that track record, how do I get my head straight around Not just the technology, but of course, more importantly, what is it this technology really um, makes possible and how do I be more creative in imagining to tie this together? The customer journey and what we might make possible to excite and delight customers with this technology. How How do I develop those muscles?
0: Again, I think you have to have that vision of what do you want a successful customer relationship look like in the future to get to that vision. I think you have to do something that is very mundane. I, I call the small data. You have to just go to some customers and really get to know them really well so that you figure out where are their pain points, where are the unmet needs, where are the deeper aspirations, what are they dreaming of? And out of that customer intimacy, you can then think about like, what is it that I'm doing to the customer? Am I selling them a textbook? Am I teaching them discounted cash flow? Am I enabling the dream of a career on Wall Street? Uh, These are very different value propositions, and I have to understand what is that the customer really wants and needs. Once I have that insight, again, I can tailor the right customer relationship to them For some customers, again, I'll make it as simple as possible. They press a button and I give them what they want. For other data, of other people, I just try to form a relationship that is much more centered around me coaching them, me helping them, being somewhat more parental in the interaction.
1: Yes. Now, I'm curious to bounce this off you. Uh, Not that long ago, we had the legendary uh, Joe Pine on the podcast, the author of The Experience Economy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he had a fascinating insight in this regard, which is he said, at a high level, there's sort of two types of companies. There's companies that people, um, uh, save money with, and there's companies that, um, (sighs) people save time with, or excuse me, spend time with. So you either save money or spend time. Mm -hmm. And you sort of have to decide, are you a company that's more like maybe, uh, an Amazon where you're saving time or are you a company that's more like Starbucks where they're, they're spending money with you. And so, um, how do you think about that concept of of what it is you're trying to deliver in this journey? Are you an efficiency play that helps me get in and out, you know, like a gas station or are you more like a Starbucks that is trying to have me spend time with you? And then how does that inform how I construct these, These customer journeys.
0: Yeah, let's go back to that tension that we talked earlier on about this willingness to pay, kind of the customer delight on the one dimension, and that efficiency, kind of fulfillment cost efficiency on the other dimension. This notion that there is a trade off. And what you're just reminding everybody is that, well, look, on this trade off curve, we probably have to make a choice that we are either the customer delight firm, like a Starbucks, or we are uh, an efficiency player, like an Audi or uh, Walmart. Right? And so that's a good first order kind of summary. What I would argue, though, that we need to do is rather than taking this trade off, this, this tension as given, we should think about innovation and future possibilities. And we should think about, like, what would it take that you blow this trade off away and you can have an efficient and high efficiency, low fulfillment cost interaction with the customer and still delight the customer? Right. I mean, again, the, the frontier, the tension has not gone away, but it has shifted now to a higher level in the sense that I can provide more of a customer magic, more of a higher willingness to pay at a lower fulfillment cost.
1: You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, we have a local UPS store franchise um, where I live and uh, it's owned by it's a family uh, business and it's a UPS store franchise. and they seem to have struck this wonderful balance where for the most part, the service they provide, I think it's, is, is a, is a, is an efficiency service, you know, get in, get out, have your stuff shipped, have your stuff sent, pick your shit up, et cetera, et cetera. They integrate of course with the drivers. Um, but yet at the same time, the, their, sort of, uh, their attitude and their approach in the store. They're very friendly. They're very personable. They're professional. And as somebody who uses the service all the time, you get to know them a little bit. And so there's a, there's a warmth to the service. And at the same time, they use technology. So when um, they're updating you where your packages are, where your shipments are, uh, we have things shipped to them for us. When stuff comes in, they send us a text message. And so on one hand, it's very efficient very sort of in and out. Um, But at the same time, they use technology to communicate and then um, on the digital side. And then when you're there in person, they're warm and they're friendly people and they seem generally happy to see you and they ask you how your day is and there's a nice little chit chat. And so it's this sort of interesting interaction where on one hand, you know, you're you're there to get something done and get out. But at the same time, by being friendly and personable in person and by using technology to communicate uh, where things are with what you're doing with them, You, you develop sort of a more relationship oriented affinity and they've, they've blurred the lines between, um, just being an efficient play and, Mm -hmm. and, and building a relationship.
0: Yeah, I like the example. The one thing I want to avoid, though, is that we're feeling that a connected strategy is something like uh, a good execution on a good old strategy with some customer friendliness to that. Right. So if you if you think about uh, an Uber or a Lyft, uh, that is not a model where we have a friendlier customer uh, service. Uh, or a friendly cab driver, we have a new business model, right? And so I think uh, it's not the effect of putting lipstick on a pig here and basically having like a good old way of doing things. We now do them with some customer friendliness on top of this. Don't get me wrong. I love when people are friendly to each other. But uh, I think the aspiration has to be somewhat bigger than just being friendly to the customer.
1: Yeah, that, that makes sense.
0: Now, one of the other
1: things you also talk about is sort of um, the supplier side of it. And we, we see so many interesting businesses today. You also talk about new business models, of course, where there are these, um, you know, in Silicon Valley, people call them network effect businesses, right? And where there's what you're trying to do is have some kind of a, a, a synchronicity between um, supply and demand and efficiency throughout the chain and, and synchronize those things using technology so that, A, you're more efficient, uh, you know, from an inventory turn point of view, from a cash flow point of view, et cetera. Et cetera. But at the same time, by sort of synchronizing customers and, and, and your suppliers to bring it together in a kind of a more orchestrated form, you're, you're able to be a better customer to your suppliers and a better supplier to your customers. Um, and so I'd be curious to sort of how you think about this supplier-customer, part of it as well?
0: I love the question because by background, I'm an operations professor. And when you were talking about inventory turns, my appreciation for your competence just went up by a factor of 10, right? I mean, you're you're like, you know what you're talking about here. Uh, And you're right that we've certainly seen in the kind of the new economy, the platform economy, the network economy, we've seen these new business models, right? In the old days, you were either producing stuff or you were selling stuff that somebody else produced, right? You were either a producer or a retailer. And what we have seen with this kind of new economy is first we would have like companies like an Amazon or like an Expedia. Think of Expedia, they neither produce anything nor did they own any airplanes, they didn't even buy the tickets, they would just basically match make and be market makers. The technical term for that is they would be two-sided markets, right? They would have on the one side of the market, they would have the airlines with their flight capacity. On the other side of the market, they have consumers, passengers like you and me, and they would never have to hold any inventory. They would just be the matchmaker. And that is, I mean, that's beautiful On if you can pull this off, if you can cater to both of these markets on both sides. It's beautiful for your capital productivity. The one thing I want to add to that, what we've seen with Uber and Lyft, Uh, similarly what we've seen with the Airbnb, is these guys did not just connect existing supply with existing demand. They kind of created or activated the uh, capacity that was previously not used. It was a car in my neighbor's driveway, that was the apartment down the street from us that was sitting empty because the owner was going on a long vacation. So they brought in new capacity and we call these guys crowd orchestrator, right? They're basically like a virtual firm They look to the customer, if you think about interacting with Uber, you think about, well, look, I just order an Uber. And what Uber does is basically it it presents itself to you as a customer, like one firm, but really behind the curtain, it is not one firm. It's basically an orchestration of uh, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of drivers.
1: And I find that incredibly fascinating because in those examples, And of course, today it seems like a a, a no shit. But if you look at it, you think about: uh, Do you own a car, Professor?
0: Uh, I I do own a car. I love my car, uh, and I'm not quite willing to give it up. But (laughs) I usually ride my bike to work. And I have days where I have to kind of carry some heavy stuff, and once in a while, even I, as a professor, have to wear a suit. And so then I take an Uber in. uh, And so I've certainly gotten a big fan of the kind of the. uh, the Ubers and the Lyfts and the ride-sharing economy.
1: And, and to me, it's a fascinating uh, sort of insight. Maybe Airbnb is an even better example where you have this um, unused resource. Or yeah. you know, if I think about, you know, there's a lot of uh, services now where you can share your car, right? If I think about my Absolutely. car and yeah. your car, it's, it's an interesting insight to say, well, hmm, I have this asset and most of the time I never use it. You know, I use it twice a day or some, maybe some days I don't use it. And then is there a way for me to monetize this? Or in the case of Airbnb, can I monetize my couch or my spare bedroom or, or my house when I'm not in it or whatever the case may be? And so th- there's sort of this, this crowd orchestrator, as you call it, seems to be accessing um, I don't know what, how you might think about it, but inefficiency insofar as yeah. there's assets that we and or companies have that don't get used, that if we can expose them in this way through a, cra- a crowd orchestrator, we may be able to monetize the downtime of this asset.
0: Yeah, if you think about most American households, the biggest asset is their house. The second, busy, the second most valuable asset is their car. Right, and so what we've seen on Airbnb is you have your house that is unused, either room or the whole house. You put it up on Airbnb, and uh, basically you are activating unused capacity that is creating value because you're overcoming an inefficiency. And then on the vehicle side, there's a platform uh, called Turo. Right? And what Turo is for cars, uh, Turo is the Airbnb for cars, right? Where if you're having that Porsche 911 that you're not driving because you're chatting with me right now, you could have put it up for on, on Turo and people would have paid you, I would guess, about $250 for the day. And again, you're not a car rental company, but you're just basically milking that asset that you have that right now is staying there unused. Again, I don't want to, in any. In, all the way glorify you as i'm fully aware as i'm sure you are that there are social problems that have happened because of airbnb to cities and nice neighborhoods in the mountains i'm not endorsing them i'm as a scientist as a researcher i'm observing that these trends have changed the way we do business
1: yes and do you see that sort of uh, and i don't know what to call it maybe you you'll tell me but that sort of uh, monetizing unused assets um through this kind of crowd model? Is that, is that something you see more and more of in different, different categories over time?
0: I've certainly seen more and more of over the last couple of years. Uh, I do not want to make a prediction, though, in the sense that everything of the economy is going to go that way. Right? I mean, it's not that we are going to Uberize everything if that is a verb. Again, we talked about Disney earlier on, Christopher, and Disney is uh, very much, we call this a connected producer. They own the theme parks. They make the movies. And so it's not that they're running a gig economy, two-sided market, some funny platform. There's not a network. They do the work. And so that good old business model has still legs. And so it's just like with these customer relationships. We don't believe that everything is going to be automated Uh, with these, uh, we call them delivery architecture. It's not that we think everything is going to happen on a platform in the shared economy or in some form of peer-to-peer network.
1: Yes. And I'm curious from an operations standpoint, this may be a little bit orthogonal, but there's a lot of talk about how the blockchain is going to enable a breakthrough in logistics, a breakthrough in operations, a breakthrough in supply chain management, and these kinds of things. I'm just curious, do you have a particular take on where things are with, with blockchain?
0: I'm not a blockchain expert, but blockchain is basically a trust engineering device if you think about it this way, right? It creates some form of trust and uh, trust is central to connected relationship because as you are kind of thinking about the big disappointments of firms that look like they were connected and then let us down as consumers, if you think about the Facebook scandal, if you think about companies that have sucked all the, your data, they sucked up all of your data, and then they turn around and sold it for a penny, a lot of that data is basically that is a violation of the trust that we consumers put in these companies. And so that element of data privacy, data security, is certainly an important element in the connected strategy.
1: Now, I'm curious on this front. Uh, you know, Facebook can do the kinds of things they do. Uh, we can have these huge breaches like Equifax and so forth. Um, and, or, or when Apple, you know, Apple uh, at, at uh, CES is promoting the fact that they have a giant banner that says what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. And shortly thereafter, we find out that some kid somewhere in the U.S. has hacked uh, FaceTime, and and that all of our our, our phones are are are, um, are are open to this hack, and of course that changes everything. And yet, in all of these examples, where essentially our privacy has been breached, there's very little ramification for the company. Maybe Apple stock price goes down a little, and then it recovers. Facebook, it, see every week we find out something, and yet. Their usage numbers are high, they continue to hit big quarters, and, and there's no government issue. And so I guess my question for you is, these companies can commit uh, sins of one sort or another around our privacy, and yet there seems to be very little ramification. What's your take on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you that it looks like some of the big platforms are getting away with murder right now. I do think it's a step that we see, especially in Europe, the new legislation there on data security, data privacy is a step in the right direction. I think we as consumers have a right to know what is happening with our data. We have a right for that data to be protected adequately, and we have the right to be informed quickly about data breaches. And I tell you quite honestly, I mean, it's up to us as consumers what we do with companies who are violating our trust, right? I mean, if you think about any other interaction, any other relationship that we have with friends, human beings, your spouse, with companies, if somebody has violated your trust pretty badly, I mean, you're going to take actions, right? And I think it is up for consumer, us as consumers to uh, take the actions the, that are in response to some of the breaches that you mentioned. So I don't think that is fundamentally different to, to, to violate a trust that we have with our friends or our family.
1: Yeah, you know, the big disappointment to me is I think there's been a lack of leadership in many technology companies in this regard. And you know, I'm not a big government regulation kind of guy at all, but because technology companies have not stood up for our privacy, um, I wonder, and I think GDPR is a good, interesting sort of start point. I wonder will we get to a place where uh, the government of the United States and the government of major uh, countries around the world essentially mandates a set of privacy laws and forces companies to adhere to it in to fill this vacuum that Facebook hasn't done that and Apple hasn't done that and Amazon hasn't done that yet but I'm, I'm curious as to your reaction
0: yeah I, I think on that front I'm all for government intervention I think the root cause of that problem has been really for many companies the lack of a connected strategy in the sense that they had no idea what to do with the data they, they just knew the data is valuable and so whenever they can they just basically there's like a vacuum cleaner. they just suck up the data and they store it somewhere and then no I mean, if you sit on a ton of data and uh, it's only a matter of time that something attacks and some of the data goes out the wrong way. And so I think it's being more transparent to yourself, but also to your customer. Like, why are you connecting the data? And what can you do now better to me as a customer now that you have the data? I think if you have that mindset, as opposed to going the mindset like let's just collect everything and uh, we can sell it for a penny because it's zero marginal cost. If you have that intentional approach to collecting data, I think you're also more likely to be trusted by a consumer.
1: Well, and look at what we just had. You know, Amazon has an Echo for kids, and now we find out that you know they've been doing some stuff that. Some people consider nefarious about that. Right. And it's like, come on, guys. Like, why are you doing this? You should know better than this. Right. Um, And, and, you know, customers aren't leaving Amazon because of it. And this is why, to your point, I, I do see a world where there is more government regulation that says, you know, you can't you can't do what you just did there, Amazon.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good point. I'm not an antitrust expert, right? But again, I think companies like Facebook, like Amazon, if your power has gotten too big, at some point the consumers have a very hard time to walk away from you. I think with Uber, Lyft, we see at least a little bit, it's not a head to head, but there's some competition going on. Uh, so I share the need, uh, the observation with you that we need to discipline these companies. Uh, I nevertheless want to emphasize that we as consumers, despite these data breaches, that we should and we do complain about. We have done pretty well in the whole, in this whole transition over the last 10, 15, 20 years of first the Amazons, then the Ubers, to the extent that you use Facebook, those things have created a lot of consumer welfare. They've been good for consumers. And so, again, I in no way want to downplay the importance of these violations. But I think that is probably why you see not even in Europe where people have probably their finger to the trigger of the gun a little kind of closer. uh, Even there, you don't see big antitrust actions taken.
1: Well, yeah. And, and, and to that point, I couldn't agree with you more. The reason um, Apple and Amazon are constantly, you know, hovering around a trillion dollar value is you can't have a company that's worth that much value unless you're creating that much value, right? You and I as consumers have benefited tr- tremendously from an Amazon, tremendously from an Apple, tremendously from a Google, etc.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go back to a keyword search on AOL, and I don't want to hop back in a cab, right? <laughs> I mean, so again, but again, we should, we should not have this be an excuse for not being professional with the way that we handle data. This is not a license to violate the law or to do unethical things. But again, I think that is something that gets a little bit lost in the discussion that we have about the behavior of these firms.
1: Now, Professor, are there any other key points about a connected strategy that you would like to tease out?
0: I think it's really helpful to understand this is really breaking a trade-off that we have kind of taken for business for all that long. I'm super excited, especially about two areas I've done a lot of work with, which is healthcare and which is education. Both of those, are, there's unlimited demand, there's unlimited need for us. We, we always You can always be healthier, live longer. There's always need for education. And I'm especially bullish on application of connected strategies in these two verticals, healthcare Care and education, and I think we can envision a great opportunity to educate our students from K twelve to university level, and we can also do a much better job as healthcare providers to help our patients in need.
1: I think these are two very exciting areas. I think, uh, and I'd be curious on. Maybe just spend a moment on each. You know, in education, it it seems like the technology is providing a way for us to. Um, engage with learning in ways we could never even think of before. And and what I mean specifically by that is I think different people learn in different ways. And so, you know, for example, I'm somebody who likes to talk about things. I like to listen. I like to see more so than I like to read. I'm, I'm dyslexic. And so reading is super tough for me, although I do do a lot of it, but um, you know, the fact that we have video and audio and, all these different formats uh, that we can use today with the tech- technology to uh, supplement and enhance the in-person experience. The- these things I find very exciting, and then it seems to lead to new business models. So this is an area that I get very excited about, but I'm curious, why is education something that you focused on?
0: So I you know, I, I teach as a, as a living, right? I'm a university professor. I had the great fortune of being one of the first professors getting in touch with Coursera when it was a small startup. Daphne then the CEO kind of contacted me through a joint friend that we have, a former student of mine, and said, can you put your course up on Coursera? And that was, I think it was course number four or five in the history of Coursera, and there was a time when there was nothing else out there, certainly not in business, and overnight I would have like 100,000 learners sign up for that course, and it really opened my eyes to the power... Of education, uh, lots of people who never would be able to afford coming to business school afford coming to Warden. Lots of people signed up, and again, the beauty of these courses is you can customize them in the sense that everybody can take them on their own time. They can take them at their own location. At that time, everything was for free. That's also very good, at least from the learner's perspective. And I was just really amazed by the impact that had on the learners. And similarly, I'm doing a. fair bit of work with our healthcare system here, trying to imagine how we can use technology to provide new patient experiences. And again, I think there's just lots of upside here that uh, is really up for us as academics, consultants, and the medical profession to imagine new ways of leveraging technology so that in the same way that we've transformed tax accounting with TurboTaxes or retailing with Amazon, we're going to transform healthcare and make it truly connected.
1: Amen. Hallelujah. (laughs) And we want our healthcare data to be very, our privacy. (laughs) Please. Yeah,
0: absolutely. (laughs) Don't put it up on Facebook.
1: Yes. Anything else you'd like to touch on,
0: Professor? No, thank you so much for having me on the show. This was a lot of fun. And it's been a real honor kind of talking with you as about this fascinating. Thank you Christopher.
1: Thank you Christian. It's a wonderful work you're doing. I really appreciate that you wrote this book. I have a sense of the kind of research and time and effort that went into it and I really appreciate you coming and spending this time with me. Cheers. Thanks professor. <laughs> professor Christian Tervish. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Uh, And I'm really hoping that you're enjoying, uh, you know, we have, um, we've been so lucky that many of the top writers in our world of business, marketing, uh, technology, personal growth, and self-help are coming on this podcast. And I certainly hope you're enjoying this run we're having of not just great authors, but uh, big brain professor authors. All right. Now, is it grow time in your business? It must be. And that's where my friends at NetSuite come in. They want to help you master your growth. Go to netsuite.com slash different. And while you're there, as a listener to this podcast, you'll be able to get a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Now, you know, as you're growing, there's all kinds of challenges that show up. Things like cash flow management, responding quickly to market changes, and maybe modifying business models, maybe entering uh, uh, new geographies, new distribution channels. We live in this new omni channel world. Also, as you're growing, you got to take planning and budgeting more seriously. NetSuite is awesome for planning and budgeting and reporting. NetSuite also facilitates company wide departmental financial planning with modeling capabilities, approvals, workflows, reporting, and more. NetSuite is one collaborative, scalable cloud offering that powers the growth of your business. And it's no mistake that a disproportionate number of the companies going public these days run NetSuite. So, why don't you go to netsuite.com different today and uh, set up your free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Because um, if it's grow time, you got to know. And with NetSuite, you're always going to know. Now, things you want to know. <laughs> if you want to find us on the World Wide Web, we're at Lockhead with two H's dot com. And the other thing to know is um, even if you have subscribed to this podcast on a major podcast player, we still don't know you're there. They are completely independent of us. So if you want a direct relationship, go to lockhead.com And while you're there hit the subscribe button and uh, we have a great newsletter. We've been working super hard to take our newsletter game up. I've been getting lots of emails and tweets and LinkedIn's and stuff from people saying they're liking our new approach on the newsletter. So go to lockhead.com and subscribe there. And if you want to um, track my very weak, very lame unpredictable (laughs) social media game you can find me on twitter and on uh, instagram at lockhead all right we would like to thank the great new book by our friend and guest today professor turvish connected strategy building continuous customer relationships for competitive advantage it's out now everywhere you get legendary books one of my all-time favorite podcasts. I listen to it religiously with my buddy and guest, and I hope he comes back soon, Jason Filippo The show's called The Grumpy Old Geeks Podcast. Check it out. Grumpy Old Geeks. The number one bestseller, Niche Down, from Heather Clancy and myself. Uh, Why don't you pick up a couple hundred copies today? They make wonderful gifts. (laughs) Growwire.com. It's where people who want to grow themselves and their businesses are growing their brains. Check out Growwire.com. Now, is it time for you to uh, help scale yourself? Why not think about the power of a virtual assistant from my dear friends at Bottleneck Online. Check out Bottleneck.online to get yourself a virtual assistant today. Now, hey, are you... uh, You know, you're romantic, you're feeling a little um, uh, a need to get married, let's say, (laughs) planning a wedding, or maybe you're just planning an event. And if you are and you're thinking about Hawaii, then I'd like you to check out my dear friends at Bell Destination Events in Hawaii. They produce spectacular weddings and super ding-dong events. Check out Bell, (laughs) B-E-L-L, maybe I'll learn to spell one day, B-E-L-L-E. DestinationEvents.com Bixen 2 Learn how to hack the future With two of the smartest people in business Joe and Bix Bixen At Bixen2.com And the incredible people At the Front Row Foundation This is an incre- a wonderful organization I'm happy to be involved with and they help people with life-threatening conditions and diseases have a uh, life-changing, positive experience. So go to thefrontrowfoundation.org and find out how you you can get involved. All right, I need to tell you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Podcast Network, and all rights do remain disturbed. We must warn you that clearly this oddcast is created in a studio that does contain nuts, and it is produced by the nicest man in podcasting, Jamie J. This podcast, or oddcast I should say, is edited by Sarah Parrish and Mike D, show notes by Roanne Nostros. Remember to teach connected strategy, support your local surfboard shafers, tell two friends you love about two podcasts you love, listen to Iggy Pop, buy John's Crazy Socks, don't be lame, get out of the passing lane, and Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Kay Ivey, governor of Alabama. Sorry, Kay, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Uh, until next time, stay legendary and follow your different.